This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to, well, I think this is a special episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. We're celebrating today, which uh, we will come to in a minute, but I am Susie Dent and I'm speaking from Oxford and with me in a little Zoom square on my screen is my co-host, Giles. (laughs) Hi there. You look like you're in a dungeon, to be honest. I'm down in the basement of my house because I had some people here from Channel 4 this week, uh, socially distanced, of course, all masked up. I think they were from Channel 4. That's what they said. And they came to record a voiceover with me. Mm-hmm. And I went, took them to the room where we normally record our podcast every week, every Tuesday. And um, they said, oh, can we look around the house a bit? Anyway, they discovered this room downstairs and they said, come here, come here, this room you're in. I said, what about it? They said, what is this room? I said, well, you can see we keep books in this room. It's a sort of storeroom. They said, but you see, it's acoustically fitted out. Look at the acoustic ceiling. And then I remember that when our children were teenagers, Mm -hmm. this is a room they used for their outrageous parties. There was a drum kit kept in this room. And my youngest daughter, Afra, used to play the drums very loudly. And that's why we had it kitted out as an acoustic room so you couldn't hear beyond it. Um, it, from where I'm sitting, it looks absolutely tiny, but does it go on for miles? It, it's, it's reasonably sized. It's re- I mean, you could fit, a, you could fit, you could fit the Beatles in their prime in this, into this room, all of the Beatles, all four of them, but they were quite small people. <laughs> uh, no, people find that hard to believe. If, unless you've been lucky enough to meet the Beatles, hmm. you won't necessarily know that they're smaller than you would expect. Okay. You might have thought that, um, Paul and Ringo were small, but not necessarily John and George. No. What you have to do, if you go to Madame de Swords, I think Mm. it's open again, uh, they've still got them on show there, and you can go and stand next to the Beatles. And people do. They can't believe how small they are. Almost everybody is taller than the Beatles. Wow. Life is full of surprises. Now, I... I want to talk about jokes. Yeah, I know. This is this is what we're celebrating, isn't it? Because it's been a special week for you. We're both celebrating and also we're coping. The celebrating part is this. Yes, I have written a, a book called What's Black and White and Red All Over. It's the best, worst joke book in the world. <laughs> and I'll explain to you in a moment why I've written this book. It's published by Puffin and it's a book for all the family. But I was talking about it on Tuesday, on This Morning. You've been a guest on This Morning, haven't mm-hmm. you? Yeah, with this you. is the programme that in the summer is hosted by Eamon Holmes mm-hmm. and his wife, uh, Ruth, and they're delightful people. Anyway, during the course of this, Eamon said to me, oh, tell us a joke, tell us a new joke, Giles. And I said, oh, well, Eamon, let me tell you my favourite coronavirus joke. And then I paused and said, of course, Eamon, we'll have to wait two weeks to see if you get it. Uh-oh. I thought that was quite original. And indeed, Eamon thought it was quite original. How and many it is complaints to Ofcom did you get? Yes, exactly. <laughs> did you seriously? Not ju- no, exactly. Complaints to Ofcom, headlines in the sun. No. In the- yes, no, no, oh, seriously. I actually, that uh, wasn't a serious question. Okay. Uh, no, exactly. Um, <sighs> happily, most people said, it's clearly a joke. It was meant as a joke. Mm. Um, no harm was intended. And we ought to be able to laugh about most things. And I think we ought to be able to laugh about most things. And in fact, in dark times like these, we do need the flash of light that a joke provides Mm. because a good joke makes us laugh. And according to 
the latest research from your university, Oxford, and mm-hmm. indeed the Alto University in Finland, laughter leads to an endorphin release in the brain that promotes a sense of calm and well-being. And apparently, even bad jokes are beneficial. According to the scientists, sharing them, these bad jokes, groaning together, can help establish social bonds. Uh, so I've got a few groaners to share. Do you have a favourite joke at the moment? Um, I am one of those people who infuriatingly cannot remember a joke. And when I do, I just ruin it completely. It's been one of the, the bane of my lives. I mean, you know, I we deal here in my house with things like what's brown and sticky, a stick. Oh, yeah, a stick. That I, kind of I, think, I think that's very funny. Yes. What's brown and sticky? A stick is very funny. But obviously I work on a comedy show. I mean, I have to say I'm not a comedian. That becomes extremely obvious whenever I have to speak. And I did worry very much at the beginning. This is a programme called Eight Out of Ten Cats Does Countdown, which is a very bawdy version of the afternoon show that you and I and work for on. for viewers around the world, because we have a lot of people in the UK, yes. but also globally, I ought to explain that this show, which is in the evenings and hosted by Jimmy Carr, who's a friend of both Susan's and mine, is both hilarious often very vulgar, but it's huge. It's an enormously successful show. Mm. And you are demure and delightful <laughs> in it. I think that's where they edit it, to be honest, because I'm rolling around with laughter quite a lot of the time. But yes, I'm not. I'm only ever funny on that show by mistake. I am not a natural comedian. And I did feel very nervous that there was an expectation I was going to be funny. But you know what? I have decided, well, I decided quite early on, that a lot of laughter is predicated on the expectation of laughter. So if you have someone who everyone else says is extremely funny, all they have to do is go, uh, and the audience will fall about laughing. And that's exactly what happens. You are spot on. We were both friends of a brilliant writer, producer, performer called Ned Sherin. Yes. Famous in the 1950s. He was one of the producers of a programme called Tonight. Later, he was the producer of That Was The Week That Was. He had an amazing career. But he said to me, Giles, if ever you've got a joke that you're a little bit uncertain about, when you start trying it out, attribute it to somebody else who is known to be funny. So say, if you've got a line, as Mark Twain used to say, and then deliver your line, or as Oscar Wilde once said. That's uh, very clever. I might try that because what tends to happen with me is people do not expect me to be funny. And hence, hypothetically speaking, were I to come out with some absolute gem, comedic gem, there would be nothing. Well, um, I have to work very hard to get any kind of snigger from the audience, unless I'm rude to Jimmy, which seems to work quite well. We have the solution at our fingertips okay. because you and I are both friends of Barry Cryer. <laughs> and Barry, now 85, scriptwriter and comedian. And he honestly is the man who knows more jokes than anyone else on yeah. earth since yeah. the passing of the late great Ken Dodd. And he called me with his current favourite. The airline pilot speaking to his passengers... Our cruising altitude today is 35,000 feet. The weather is set fair with just the possibility of light turbulence, so do keep an eye on the seatbelts fasten sign and enjoy the flight. In accordance with current government guidelines, I'm working from home. (laughs) That's very good. And that's a very Barry joke. I I do like that one. But you touched on a really important point before we, we go on to 
etymologies and and some of your brilliant jokes that you know what constitutes comedy and there is so much at the moment of a discussion over how far comedy can go the boundaries mm-hmm. of comedy the boundaries of political correctness what you can joke about what you can't what is offensive what isn't you know there's just been so many incidences of the cancel culture as we're now calling it where people can say something it may or may not have been intended to be you're right. Rude, the other day, Rowan Atkinson, you know, made gave a, a lecture or came out on on this subject, mm. uh, uh, saying it's just gone. It's just gone too far. Right. We must be free to be funny. Yeah. And I rather believe that. I mean, yeah. humour is subversive. It's always been subversive. Yeah. Well, if you think of Shakespeare's fools and things, the whole idea is that they were the only ones who could speak the truth, as it were. Well, shall we quickly? Shall I give us? Rattle through the history of yes, jokes. Yes, please, because you know far more uh, about you, this than Well, me. I don't know, but I've done a little bit of homework on it of because course. of my book. You told me the other day what the origin of the word joke was. That's very mm. ancient, isn't it? It's Latin, yes. Yeah. So, um, jocus, which gave us jocular, of course. So, yeah, it goes back to, I mean, I'm sure jokes precede the Romans, but it was their word for a jest. Well, the oldest joke on record appears to date from the old Babylonian period, around 2300 B.C., and it features a young wife breaking wind in front of her husband. Mm-hmm. So it's a fart joke. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. This is a fart joke that is more than 2,300 years old. And what's amusing is that the woman comes off uh, rather better, well, though she's farting. She's farting in contempt of her husband. Anyway, so that's the oldest joke we know. It's a fart what, joke. Is it, and, is it a written joke? Is it uh, a one-liner? Well, it, it didn't seem to me very funny. I mean, it's basically about a woman who farts in her husband's <laughs> face. <laughs> and oh, okay. that seems to raise a laugh. She's okay. putting her husband down um, so and sending speak. him up and yes. farting in his face. And that's, okay. you know, it's putting blokes in their place. But the point is, it's been going on for hundreds of years. Yes. Fart jokes have been with us forever. And yeah. they still are. Barry Cryer reminded me that back in the day, you know, before this coronavirus thing, back in the day, you'd cough to cover up a fart. But now, with COVID-19, you fart to cover up a cough. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't Barry's joke. I, I just made it Barry's oh, joke to make it seem funny. To, to make you... Um, <laughs> anyway, but you were right. You mentioned Shakespeare and the fools in Shakespeare. Mm. Shakespeare's plays, and in a sense, they are the largest body of work in English language that we have. We know that people like Plautus, Roman writers, wrote great comedies, Aristophanes and all those guys. But in terms of plays in the English language that we could read. Shakespeare's plays are awash with jokes. Uh, Lewd jokes, toilet humour. Some of it still works. Have you ever appeared in Twelfth Night? Most people have appeared in Twelfth Night. No. I've never appeared in any... Well, I don't know, perhaps Midsummer Night's Dream when I was at school. But no, definitely not Twelfth Night. Anyway, in Twelfth Night, Malvolio. Have you heard of the character Malvolio? He is the steward. Malvolio is the steward. And it's one of those names in Shakespeare that also means something. Malvolio, Malvolio ill will. Ill wisher, yes. Yeah. Malvolio is the steward. He's rather egregious. And anyway, he he's gets this letter that is, he thinks has been sent to him by his mistress, Olivia. His mm-hmm. mistress in the sense that she employs him. He would like to, she would like her to be his mistress in the other sense. Anyway, he is musing happily on this letter, looking at the handwriting, trying to decipher it. By my life, this is my lady's hand. These be her very C's, her U's and her T's. And thus makes she her great P's. But as Frank Carson used to say, <laughs> it's the way you tell them. The point is, there is a joke yeah. which contains the, either the word cut, or depending on the way you pronounce an and, yes. even C-U-N-T is there. Yeah. And thus makes you a great piece. These are literally 
really vulgar jokes. They are, although we have to say, because we talked oh. about this, didn't we, in our swearing episode, that the C word has only really become very, very vulgar a bit more recently than Shakespeare. I mean, it would oh. have been improper, but not vulgar, I reckon. Oh, good. So you'd have got away with it. Yes, I think it would have been improper and and hence sniggeringly, sniggeringly funny, but not. it wouldn't have been um, taboo. Yeah. Shakespeare uses his favourite joke at least eight times in different plays. Now, are you a great Shakespeare buff? Do you recognise the joke? Not as much as you. I know there's a knock-knock joke in Shakespeare, isn't there? Yeah. He only uses that once. Yes. The joke he uses eight times Mm. is basically one character says, is this your daughter, sir? And the other character replies, so her mother told me. (gasps) Eight times? In different, different plays. Different versions of that are used. It's his favourite joke. He keeps coming back to it. Obviously loved it. I'm not sure that's funny. Well, it's, it was once actually made in the House of Commons, the joke. The man who said it was a member of Parliament and a novelist and a, a biographer, H. Montgomery Hyde. Oh, well remembered. When he was a member of Parliament, he on one occasion said, maternity is a matter of fact. Paternity is a matter of opinion. Hmm. Um, I'm not because, sure. I think as a woman, I'm not sure I completely like those. Kind oh, of, you don't need to like them. No, but, but it's that, the whole implication, isn't it, that, that females are whores, basically. Oh, I no. Think. Don't you reckon? Oh, no. Quite the, how interesting. It's mm. quite the reverse. So, um, so her wife, my wife has told me, if she's been kind enough to acknowledge that I might be, <laughs> but I don't really know. Oh, oh, I no, don't know. Completely the reverse. I don't know. It's I wouldn't polar, take it that it's way. It's usually some impotent old man. That reminds me, it's, it's in the same vein, I'm sure Shakespeare didn't use this one, of, of kind of introducing um, your partner as my current wife. I don't oh, know. yes, my first. People who say my first wife. Yes. Presumably comedy and humour and jokes throughout history have reflected, obviously, social social mores of the time. So I'm sure there's loads of misogyny, just as there is in, in you know, slang through the ages. So it would be quite interesting to study jokes from that point of view. In fact, you know what? Jimmy Carr has written a history of, um, of comedy Ooh. and jokes. In fact, Jimmy Carr, who we were talking about earlier, has written a history of jokes. It's called The Naked Jape. Mm. So, yeah, worth looking that one up too. But it, it is the most fascinating subject. So we've got Shakespeare, then what comes next? Well, we've got Shakespeare and then, while we've got Shakespeare, I must give you my favourite Romeo and Juliet joke. Well, okay. I've got two Romeo and Juliet jokes. What's the difference between COVID-19 and Romeo and Juliet? Don't know. One's a coronavirus, the other's a Verona crisis. Oh, Looks quite clever on the page. Anyway, <laughs> that, <laughs> the last Just, time, yeah. let's move on. Let's move on from Shakespeare. Okay, although we must return to the knock-knock joke. And we will, oh, that's not oh we have either. to return. Yes, we okay. will return to the knock-knock joke. And in fact, we could do a whole show about puns. Yes. Because I love puns and Shakespeare was the prince of puns. Yes. But if we're going to move on quickly from Shakespeare to complete our brief history, mm. the last time British theatre was shut down for any extended period was during Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth, when the theatres were compulsorily closed and jokes were officially frowned upon Mm. for, wait for it, 16 dark years. Wow. We may think the last six months have been grim and the next six months for theatres are going to be hell as well. But literally, the theatres were compulsorily closed down. And that included, there was the plague years, of course, uh, as well. But on top of that, uh, Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth closed the theatres. But the good news is that when the theatres reopened after those 16 dark years, the country literally burst out laughing. And that's when restoration comedy was born. Uh People like Congreve, Witcherly, Farquhar, Uh all those hilarious plays. The Country Wife, and then we get on to people like Sheridan, 
These are hilarious plays, and comedy, as it were, ruled the roost, and the nation was rolling in the aisles as never before. Racy romps, wit and wordplay. So in the 18th century, it was the gentleman playwrights who were conjuring up the jokes. Many of them, uh, you will be shocked to hear, blatantly sexist, but that Mm. was the world, as you say. Mm. Comedy reflects the age, and that's why it's fascinating. That's why I think you can't start banning things, crossing out burning books, Mm. because otherwise how are you going to get a picture of what the world was like? Anyway, in the 19th century, the birth of the music hall brought working-class comedians centre stage, Mm -hmm. and a new kind of comedy became well-known. Dan Leno, champion clog dancer of the world, biggest star of the Victorian age, when he played Dame in pantomime, he always came on, flustered, with the same line, Oh, I feel just like a cup of tea, sloppy, wet and hot. Uh, Not much of a line, but a hundred years later, I went to a pantomime with Terry Scott as the Dame, and he used exactly that trope. I can imagine Alan Carr saying exactly that and getting a real laugh there you uh, are. these days. So, yes, yeah. timeless, that one. So that's when, as it were, working-class entertainers in the Victorian age became hugely popular, famous, and many of them wealthy. Mm. The Victorian age is also when we got, in a sense, the kind of modern riddle, because the Christmas cracker was uh-huh. invented in yeah. the 1840s. Yeah. Tom Smith, 1847, started his Christmas cracker business. He chose the jokes personally. Hmm. On grounds of good taste, hmm. he's said to have rejected one of my favourite jokes. What does Queen Victoria do when she burps? She issues a royal pardon. Oh, that's brilliant. It's brilliant. But it was but considered was... les majesté. Okay. Out. Out. Yes. That's where we get Christmas cracker jokes. But it was the advent of advertising that sort of democratised the joke because, as you mentioned earlier, in Macbeth, Shakespeare's porter, who's the yeah. comic character in Macbeth, cries, knock, knock, who's there? That's the origin of that phrase. But it wasn't until the 1930s that the knock, knock joke became universal. Yes, because that's not a joke in Shakespeare, is it? It's just, it's just no. there's a whole host of characters to this drunken a, But he's funny. He repeats yeah. the line and it's a comic scene. Yeah. An American roofing company in the 1930s ran a newspaper advertisement that began, knock, knock, who's there? Rufus. Rufus who? Rufus, the most important part of your house. <laughs> that, that, that deserves a groan. <laughs> and it what, does what? deserve, and a groan is good for you. And that's when you were telling me the other day, this is how we got into all this, mm. about the corn seed companies yes. doing mail order, yes. featuring jokes to sell the... Remind me of that? Yes. So a corny joke comes from particularly cheesy jokes that appeared in corn catalogues that were sold to farmers right across the US. That's fascinating about the knock-knock and, you know, just things that we assume, the formula, formulae that we think of as being incredibly modern. Well, before um, we get round to types of jokes, yes. uh, I think we okay. should take a, a break. But to take us into the break, I want to explain that my professional interest began in this in the 1970s when I started collecting jokes when my children were small. And I was retained to create a series of mini joke books to promote Kellogg's breakfast cereals. <laughs> and they had to be family-friendly jokes, guaranteed to have snap, crackle and pop. And my best effort hmm. was inspired by the recent moon landings. Hmm. So this was my joke. And then we'll have a break so we can recover from it. And then in part two, I won't speak and Susie will. This is the joke. Bear in mind, we've just landed on the moon and it's a corny joke. <laughs> There's a new restaurant on the moon, I announced. Great food, but no atmosphere. Uh... <laughs> 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else. Katy Piper's Extraordinary People. Join Katy for a series of powerful and inspirational conversations with people who have triumphed over adversity. With guests including Fern Cotton. And what about when you get really lazy journalism? So like people that draw just one line, they take it out of context. And that's really sad because... It is, it is. And I've also been on the receiving end of it so, mm. so many times. Sometimes to really tragic levels for me where I've really not felt able to cope with it. Yeah. Zoe Sugg and Nadia Hussein. I think the, the thing with women, firstly, is that women sometimes don't always like to see other women succeed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I think that's right, yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of that, and I think that's why just it, it's really hard sometimes because it, 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 in the last four years, I've changed so much. Mm. Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. We're back. Susie Dent, Giles Brandreth. We're talking jokes on Something Rhymes With Purple this week. And I've been collecting jokes over the past 50 years. So I've seen the passing fashions. In the 1960s, the New York comedian Lenny Bruce was at the height of his notoriety. Have you even heard of Lenny Bruce? I've heard of him, but I don't know too much about him. He was a strange man. And sick jokes were what he did. The sick jokes were all the rage. Where does a horse go when it gets sick? The hospital? Just kidding. It gets shot. Oh, okay. 1970s, there was a massive amount of graffiti jokes. I did lots of graffiti joke books, as did our mutual friend Nigel Reese. So these were based on genuine graffiti? Well, yes. And then people began inventing graffiti, you know, down with graffiti, down with all Italians. I mean, yes. that sort of uh, message that people thought was amusing. Mm. 1980s, curious fascination with people's names. What do you call a bloke with a plank on his head? Do you know this one? <laughs> no. Ed Wood. Ed Wood. Uh, is it Ed Wood? That, this one, one of um, my youngest favourite jokes is, what do you call a one-eyed deer? And then it's, it's you know this one. No idea. No idea. And then what do you, this is just awful. What do you call a sleeping one idea? Still no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And so on, and so on, and so on. That's a joke that isn't in my book. It'll be in the next edition. What do you you call a girl with two toilets on her head? Oh, I can't remember this one. Tallulah. (laughs) (laughs) Lulu. No, no, keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Oh, dear. All right. Now, look, I've said more than enough. We could go on blathering. I'm going to try not to. Tell us about some... We want to talk about etymology. That's why people tune in. What do you call... Etymology. Someone Uh, who likes to float in the water. What do you call someone who likes to float in the water? Bob. (laughs) 
just terrible. Anyway, let's and, move on. If you're a gongoozler, you like looking at Bob because he's floating in the water. We know yeah. that gongoozlers are people who like looking at water. Spend yes. hours doing that. And we do have, actually, there are still a few mugs left. If people want to get hold of some of our merchandise, we've got mugs, we've got tote bags or some kind of a bag, haven't we? And at the end, we'll give you the address. Look, I'm showing her mine on the Zoom. There's my mug. It's very see, nice. I love the way you bring it up it. for this. Actually, yeah. genuinely, the tote bag I use all the time. It's got belly timber on one side. Oh, belly timber. That's um, rude. What's belly but no, timber? Belly timber is, is what you go out to buy, really. It's sustenance. It's timber for your belly. Uh, now, look, I mentioned puns, and I wanted to devote a programme to puns one day. Where does that word come from, the word pun? Yeah, it's strange. We're not completely sure, and actually that's the case with quite a lot of terms from comedy, but it's probably a humorous version or alteration of an Italian puntiglio, which meant a sort of, it's an equivocation. It's something which is neither one thing nor the other. And that's the power of puns, isn't it? It comes from two things. What is the ambiguity? And then you just pack more layers of meaning into it. So you're kind of, yeah, it's it's, the, it's all about the sort of the power, if you like. But ultimately, I think it's the Latin punctum, meaning point. And they're also known as paranomasia, uh, which is way too complicated. So let's stick with puns. Paranomasia. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare is so full of them. We've mentioned yes. Romeo and Juliet earlier. Almost the most famous one is when Mercutio, Romeo's friend, is lying, dying, and he quips, ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave man. Oh, How are you? Brilliant. Exactly. Amazing. It's clever. It's clever. Yeah. So it, it's a play on words. Yeah. Um, a double entendre. I, mm. I was a friend of both, because we, we we're going to do, rest assured, we're coming up soon with an episode on uh, name dropping. And I shall be keeping quiet. I won't quiet. be speaking in that one. You will be. <laughs> You've be. met all the stars. What's interesting is that I've met a lot of famous people and I drop their names. I don't think any of those famous people have ever dropped my name. <laughs> but whenever I meet a famous person who knows Susie, they always talk about you. So they're always dropping your name, Susie. Uh, but I, I think- did. I was a friend of both uh, Kenneth Williams and a very different person, Frankie Howard, but they mm. were contemporaries. And yeah. both of them in their own way reveled in the double entendre. Yes. And is it double entendre or double entente? Entendre. So it's, um, it, yes, you're right, because entendre would kind of make sense, but it's a double, it's to understand double, really. So it's the use of entendre as the verb. But we call it a double understanding, don't we? And actually, do you know what? They don't have it in French. They have double entente, as you said, or double sens. But oh, they don't really call, they don't really use double entendre. Um, oh, that and that's is interesting. the case with quite a lot of things that we nick from the French, I have to say. But, but two, two, where do you stand on shaggy dog stories? Oh, dearie me. Yeah. Oh, dear. Once upon a time, there was a boy called Ben who had a long-haired dog called Shaggy. Shaggy didn't know his name was Shaggy. Shaggy thought his name was Down Boy. Ben was so proud that Shaggy was so long-haired and that he looked so shaggy that he entered him into the village's Shaggy Dog contest and Shaggy won. Ben was excited and delighted. Next, he decided to enter Shaggy in the Shaggy Dog contest in the nearby big town. Shaggy won that too. Thrilled, Ben decided to enter Shaggy in the national Shaggy Dog contest. Shaggy won that competition as well. Finally, Ben decided to enter Shaggy in the World Shaggy Dog Championships a major international event held in New York City, the US of A. When the judges had inspected all of the competing dogs, one of them looked at Shaggy and said, he's not that Shaggy, is he? Wow, that is based, is that the 1930s joke that it all originated from? 
That was what I was told when I was doing my yes. research. But is there no, some truth? No, it's absolutely right. It's it's just although oh. you've made it actually sound quite interesting because I wanted to know what happened. But yes, it's all about pointless narration of various things. And you're absolutely right. The winning dog is presented to the the person who apparently asked for the shaggiest dog in the nation. Uh, and then, yes, he declares, I don't think he's so shaggy. End of joke. So, so it's really a, a long joke with a pointless ending. Yes, and it's the same with an old chestnut, which goes back uh, to it's a really quite boring piece of a script in a very old comedy where I think it was, I'm trying to think, it was 19th century, I think it was the, the it was a melodrama and it was called The Broken Sword. But it, it did, it was actually performed to rave reviews, but the scene does sound very, very boring. And there's a character who monotonously retells his old exploits to his long-suffering servant who clearly knows them by heart. And he talks about he entered the wood when suddenly from the thick boughs of a cork tree and the servant jumps up and says, a chestnut, sir, a chestnut. Uh, This is the 27th time I've heard you relate this story and you invariably said a chestnut. So that's where that one comes from. Actual stories, which are, you know, let's face it, not funny. Do you know, this must be what it's like. You and me, this is how you put up with me, (laughs) listening to the same old things week in, week out in a very tolerant way. No, but I quite, I think I find that quite comforting. I mean, apologies to all the purple listeners who hear us say things, you know, two or three times, or if not more. But I find that really comforting. And I have many times on Countdown where I think, I must have said this before, or I've said this so many times. It might be a favourite etymology, but there's a very distinct sense that everybody will know what you're talking about. But Exactly. Forget. When the word leotard comes up, everyone yeah. goes, ah, oh, it's leotard again. It's Jules Leotard, the trapeze artist. Yes. But actually people forget if it's not your absolute subject that you're immersed in every day, I think they do forget. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed they will give us some leniency there. What about the ch- chicken crossing the road? Joke oh, what about category? the chicken crossing the road? Well, that apparently appeared in an edition of the Knickerbocker. Now, that was a New oh. York City monthly magazine that actually had someone called Dietrich Knickerbocker, I think, walking around and that's you know, in these long breaches and that's where we get the garment thing from. And it's just, it's a, it's a joke where the setup gives you an expectation that there's going to be a fantastic punchline at the end of it, but actually it's just, oh, to get to the other side. It's That's bathos, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, of course, there have been so many riffs on that one. Yeah. Why did the chicken cross the road? To show everyone he wasn't chicken. Oh, okay. It's quite neat, isn't it? Well, yeah. Why did the turkey cross the road? Chicken's day off. Not bad. Or to prove he wasn't chicken either. Okay. Um, why did the chewing gum cross the road? Oh, tell me. Stuck to the chicken's foot. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh why did the dinosaur cross the road? Um, uh, I don't know. Because the chicken wasn't around yet. Oh. Uh, um, oh there's another one that a couple of our producers have sent that I find is actually really funny. I've not seen this one before. A dyslexic man walks into a bra. Oh, now you <laughs> see about that. Tr- We're not laughing you're... at dyslexic people at no, all. No, exactly. Um, but it, it's, but quite, it's just a it's, it's a play nice on one. words, isn't yes. it? No offence is intended or, or meant. Uh, no, and indeed, not. I was my my mother. Interestingly, I think I may have told you this before. In the 1950s, she was a pioneer in working with people, yes. young people who had dyslexia, and worked on this. And I remember her telling me how she used my joke books years ago first time around my joke books, with children mm-hmm. and plays on words and to help them understand how words are shaped. Uh, funny enough, when I was doing some work on people with some people who were trying to find cures for dyslexia, I got a lot of emails saying, actually, 
do we need a, a cure for dyslexia? Yeah. Many of the most creative people are absolutely. dyslexic people. I think that's uh, really true. You know, which is interesting. Yes. Uh, a boxer, Susie Dent, a boxer yes. told me a joke and the punchline was a knockout. <laughs> What's the origin of punchline? Oh, punchline. Well, it just gives you, it just, it's got a, a dynamic ending. I think that's the whole idea is it just gives you a punch at the end. But do you oh, know what? It an, is a knockout. Yeah. Do you know what an uproariously funny joke is called? I love this. What is an uproariously funny joke called? A boffola. A boffola? Boffola. I thought that was a kind of cheese, an Italian cheese. Buffalo mozzarella? Funny cheese, boffola. <laughs> is it the same sort of word? No, it's linked to buffoon. Oh. And I think ultimately it might go back to... To the Commedia dell'arte, there's Italian yeah, characters, and also an Harlequin Italian Columbine. With a blowing out your cheeks, so perhaps you're puffing your cheeks with laughter, Bofalo. which is great. Um, what about gag? Wagon gag. Wagon uh, gag, yes. Give us this. Gag. Yeah, well, this is, if you look it up in the OED, it says they're not completely sure, but it's perhaps the notion of thrusting something down the throat of a credulous person. So testing their powers of swallowing, I guess. So in that case, related to the gagging that you might do if you get something stuck in your throat. Or it may be of onomatopoeic origin and it'd be a bit like gaggle. So just sort of unmeaning chatter, which obviously mm. wouldn't go down very well with comedians. But wag is an interesting one because wag is actually, it's quite dark, but it's an abbreviation of waghalter. And waghalter was an old nickname centuries ago for a mischievous child who was so mischievous, in fact, that they might wag or hang from the gallows. Uh, from the halter around their neck in the gallows. So it was really dark humour. You know, if you carry on like that, you'll be hanged. Oh, it is dark. Mm. Before we get on to our listeners' questions, which we are coming to in just a moment, let's just rattle through the J's, because you mentioned the naked jape written by our mutual friend Jimmy Carr. What about japing, joshing, jesting? Where do they all come from? Yes. So we don't quite know where jape comes from, but it's it's quite old. It might come from an old French word, yappe, meaning to yelp or yap, combined with another French word, gabe, which meant to mock, which makes more sense, the kind of mockery of a, of a jape. Joshing. Now, this may have something to do with an actual comedian, um, which is, is lovely because this is one of the things where you would imagine that you know, you'd be making it up if you said there was a real Josh somewhere. But we think there might be. And he was called, I think he was called, I'm just going to double check this, Josh Bartlett. And he was very prominent in his time on stage. Let me just double check this for you. So I'm going to the OED now. A piece of banter or badinage, it says here, a Josh as a noun. Josh Billings, sorry, not Bartlett, but oh, yes. Billings. He was no, I think American he was a writer. Humorist. I think he was an American humorist. Okay, okay so 19th, we're talking mid-19th century? I'd think a little bit later, but anyway, okay. the name does ring a distant bell. Okay, but amazingly, it seems like this is an eponym, which is, is quite strange because I wouldn't have believed that if you told me that to begin no, with. No, to Josh. is named yeah. after Josh Billings. Yeah. Like a titchy character is named after a little titch who is yes. named after the Tichborne Claimant. Tichborne Claimant. We talked about that, didn't we? That, yeah. That's really, really strange. Have we talked about before pulling your leg? Because you're not pulling my leg about Josh. I'm not pulling your leg, I don't think. Um, no, to pull one's leg, I think this probably has got a folk etymology attached to it. And the idea is that people who were condemned to hang, so we're back to the gallows, would ask their friends to come and pull on their leg in order to expedite their death and not leave them hanging there. But of course, what 
on earth would the connection be then with humour? So far more likely is the trick of pickpockets, etc., to trip someone up, to pull someone's leg. In other words, to, you know, to topple them over by putting out some obstacle, including their own leg, perhaps, and then pick their pockets. But again, not particularly funny. So it's a slightly strange one, that one. With the Js, did we cover jest? No, jest was the... Jester, exactly. Simply goes back to the Latin jester with a G, um, meaning doings or exploits. So it's linked to gesture and all of that stuff. So, yeah, that one's pretty ancient as well. Oh, can I just tell you about lampooning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, lampooning is, you know, is the sort of the satire and making mockery of things. That that was once a drinking game. And it goes back to um, the old French lampon meaning let us drink. So it was a bit of a toast uh, oh. whilst saying very satirical uh, verse or uh, lines from a play, etc. And then it moved I love a bit of lampooning. Itself. I'm looking forward to the return of Spitting Image later this year. Oh, I can't wait for that. Yes. Love it. I, mean, I that, love good lampooning. Have you seen a series called The Windsors? No. Oh, it's hilarious. It's, it's okay. a comedy. It's a funny version of The Crown and okay. I think much more lifelike. Hilarious. Oh, excellent. Well, you would um, know. Okay, brilliant. I will definitely look for that. Meanwhile, shall I just tell you some of the best jokes of the Edinburgh Fringe? The oh, ones good. that have been selected some? by other people. Yes. Oh, good. This from, was from the Swedish comedian Olaf Falafel. Um, and Is it Olaf Falafel? Come on, that can't be a real name. But maybe Josh Billings doesn't sound like a real name either. But anyway, go on. No. He says, I keep randomly shouting out broccoli and cauliflower. I think I might have florets. Oh. That one, that one, uh, last year. That's very neat. You see, it is a kind of pun, isn't it? Yeah. yeah go on. More. Um, and then 2018, Adam Rowe, working at the job centre has to be a tense job, knowing that if you get fired, you still have to come in the next day. Oh, oh, that's very clever. 2017, Ken Cheng. I'm not a fan of the new pound coin, but then again, I hate all change. Oh, these are ingenious. Massey Graham, I hope I'm not, I'm probably mispronouncing that, so apologies. This was in 2016. My dad suggested that I register for a donor card. He's a man after my own heart. That's very clever. Oh, that is clever. And Nick Helm, I have to mention Nick Helm because he's a friend. He's a lovely man who has very embarrassingly serenaded me on the set of 8 Out of 10 Cats Just Countdown. I mean, oh. it wasn't a real one. It was for, for comedy effect. Mm, that's what you think. He says, I needed a password eight characters long. So I picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> sweet. I like that one. Very oh, that's sweet. very nice. Yes, it's I nice, like that, that very much. Now, look, if people have got really good, original, fresh jokes, do feel yeah. free to send them to us. And we want Please. them to be fresh. I mean, did you know that I've invented a new word, I think? No. Plagiarism. <laughs> uh, that's good. I like that one. That's so, whatever you come up with, it may not be original. As Barry Crow genuinely says, when it comes to jokes, nobody really owns them. Comedians have them on a lease. Oh. It's difficult to say who created a joke. Yeah. So if, if you've got a, a joke that you think's a gem, particularly one that's got a connection with words and language, do get in touch with us. Is our address still purple at somethingelse.com? It is. And the purple people are quite incredible because do you remember last time we put a shout out to the purple people to ask what you call that kind of pavement dance where... Each of you, you meet another person, you try to get out of their way and each of you just kind of go in the same direction the whole time and you never actually get past each other and the result is much embarrassment. We had so many emails, Giles, to oh. give us some suggestions for this. Rebecca Lawrence wrote in with Curb Twirl or Pave Sway. Well, I like uh, that. Yvonne Ewington went for Dodgery Do. Oh, I, Dodgery Do, that's dodgery-do. ingenious. 
is very good. Um, Swidal is Chris Street's choice. That's a mashup of Sidewalk and Sidal, a Swidal. Kath Evans, North Wales, suggested the Doozy Don't, which is. Oh, clever. Doozy Don't, maybe. Oh, Doozy Don't, sorry. As in, I can Doozy Don't and Doozy Don't, some little lambsy divey, gizzly divey do. Do you know that phrase? I don't do you know. know. That That's why I completely mucked it up. <laughs> I don't know uh, what vintage Kath Evans is from North Wales, but she may be of my vintage. If she's from my vintage, she will know that there was a song which goes, mares eat oats and does eat oats and little lambs eat ivy. And you say it quickly, it ends up as mazy doats and dozy doats and little lambs eat ivy. Uh, and that's, okay. I think that's where she may have got that's the dozy dents from. from. Oh, well, okay. Thank you for putting me straight on that one. Brian Leach suggested circumcadence. That's quite clever, actually. Mm-hmm. Circumcadence. Why is it clever? What circum means? What does cadence Circum is to go around, isn't it? And cadence, well, it's from, from the Latin, it actually gave us accident and all sorts of things, meaning to fall. Mm. Um, so I like that one. And we absolutely couldn't finish without a nod to one of my absolute favourite books and probably one of your Giles's too, yours too, I reckon, which is The Meaning of Lif. Ah, by our uh, friends John Douglas Lloyd. Adams and John Lloyd. John Lloyd. Amazing, amazing book, which is where they find street names to then fill the linguistic gap for things that we really, really need a word for. And Droitwich in the book is defined as a street dance. The two partners approach from opposite directions and try politely to get out of each other's way. They step to the left, step to the right, apologise, step to the left again, apologise again, bump into each other and repeat as often as unnecessary. That is a Droitwich defined far better than I could possibly define that pavement dance. So there's your answer, really. We've had so much correspondence. We may have to do one of those catch-up episodes where we just deal with all the amazing things. Yes, and I'd love to talk more about the meaning of lift because I just absolutely love that. Well, look, let's give ourselves a lift lift one week. Meanwhile, I need your three words of the week, Susie Dent. Well, this one is based on a novel that absolutely isn't funny. In fact, it's a real tragedy, but it kind of, I remember reading it as a teenager and it was just perfect for for me at that time. And it's Madame Bovary. So it's a word for Madame Bovary. And it's Bovarism, which is an unreal or romanticised perception of oneself. And I think we all have that. I definitely Mm. had that as a teenager. Yeah. Um, I've sure. still got it. I'm Did still you? a Bovarist. Yeah, I think I probably do too, to be honest. That's lovely. Go on. Okay. Then we have balatronic, which means characteristic of a buffoon. So, oh, you know, you. that could apply to quite a few people in the public. Balatronic. Yes. And finally, an American one here, an old American dialect one. Um, and it is, I'm not sure if, how well it will be known to our American listeners, but it kind of links into the corny joke idea. And that's a char bacon or chaw bacon, C-H-A-W-B-A-C-O-N. And it's a country dweller, I think possibly quite insulting, you know, to go with the whole sort of bumpkin lexicon. But I don't know. I just think it sounds quite nice, a chore bacon. But apologies if I am insulting. But I just quite like that one, a chore bacon. As I say, it reminded me of the corny jokes. I promised to tell everybody before we went what the address was if they wanted to get hold of one of our amusing gongoozle mugs. Yes. It's simply, you get it from purple at backstreetmerch.com. Purple at backstreetmerch.com. And if you want to get in touch with us uh, because you've got a, a joke to share or you just want to communicate, we're purple at somethingelse.com. And we would love it if people gave reviews. I have to say every week I get a kind of summary sent of all the reviews to our podcast. And so I do, and I'm sure you too, do too, Giles, we do read them all and um, it means a lot. 
And the reason she gets them is they always say nice things about her and they always say about me, Giles, would you say less? And I haven't said less this week only because I'm excited about the world of jokes. Well, this is got, your moment. This is my this is my moment, my wonderful moment. And when we do the name-dropping episode, I'll tell you how I actually am a friend of Leslie Brickus, now 89, who wrote, and this is my moment. Good grief. Honestly, with, I can't get to... And there's nothing in the world that I could mention that you can say, well, actually, I have met this person. Yeah. No, it's probably, Ordinary. Probably um, not. And I have actually mentioned, because this is my gag, and this is what I'm ending on after your three... This is my, yes. I, I have met, I did meet, I did know quite well. I worked with him, I loved him. Ken Dodd, this is one of his favourites. Did you hear about the shrimp that went to the prawns cocktail party? He pulled a muscle. Oh... Something Rise with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Harriet Wells, Grace Laker, Gully, and actually we have a new kid on the block today. He's called Jay. If you thought the sound was a bit better than usual, now you know why. <laughs> well, that's because you're in your dungeon. <laughs>